Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today, we are going to be looking at the state of the cloud through the lens of the Flexera State of the Cloud 2023 report. But we're not going to try to do it alone. We have brought on a special returning guest, Keith Townsend, the founder of the CTO Advisor. And we got off on a very interesting tangent, didn't we, Ethan? We did. It uh, happens kind of in the second half of the show where we get talking about uh, people and training, uh, because one of the points in the report is the difficulty companies are having in finding talent and expertise to take their cloud practice to where they'd like it to be. And ultimately, people are what it's all about. So that's where we ended up focusing. Enjoy this conversation with Keith Downsen, CTO Advisor. Well, Keith Townsend, welcome back to Day 2 Cloud. You're a returning guest, a return, a repeat offender. But for those who haven't caught you before, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? All right. So I am the principal of the CTO Advisor. I've been doing this thing almost as long as Ethan. We've compared notes. Uh, me and Ethan were at a uh, vendor event this past week, and we compared notes. I've been doing this since about 98, mid-90s. Mm. Uh, the CTO Advisor is a advisory firm where we create both content and advise customers on their hybrid cloud strategy. So this is kind of a, a the right the right topic, right? I, you would hope so. And and the topic that you're mentioning is we're going to be talking about the state of the cloud, and this is in lieu of the annual Flexera State of the Cloud report. They do a survey of a pretty decent swath of people and ask them a bunch of questions around their cloud usage, and they produce this annual report. I believe it used to be the RightScale state of the cloud, and then RightScale was purchased by Flexera. So if that rings a bell for anybody, it's the same report. It's been going on for like eight or nine years now. It's just kind of changed names as the companies have shifted around. Before we get into the meat of the report, I just wanted to mention a little bit about the demographics of the people who were respondents for for the survey because I think that really informs the information that you find inside of the survey. So in terms of number of people, it's about 750 people that they surveyed. Um, and this was in the winter of 2022. So this is pretty recent information. It's not like they did this last spring before when everything was perfect before the economy, you know, took a little bit of a downturn. Uh, Two-thirds of the respondents are from companies with more than 2,000 employees. So we're talking most of the respondents are coming from larger enterprise class type companies. This isn't as representative of SMB. They do break things out in the SMB category in some places where it's applicable. But if you are out there in the audience working at an SMB that's got less than 1,000 or you know 500 or 200 people, some of this might not line up with what you're seeing because you probably have a different experience of how you're utilizing cloud. Uh, in terms of industry verticals, the big ones were tech firms, financial firms, and healthcare. So they made up the majority of the company types that were responding. But since those are large swaths of our economy, I think mm. that's pretty representative of what's going on. And lastly, the majority of the respondents are in the United States or the UK or India. So, I mean, that is where a lot of the tech is centered. But, you know, if you don't happen to live in one of those geographies, again, your mileage may vary. But uh, with all that context set up, uh, Keith, what were some big takeaways for you looking through the report? You know, a couple of big takeaways were I was actually surprised with the number of 
companies that are all in public cloud. Cloud only is 24%. I would have pegged that number a little bit lower than that, uh, especially when part of the demographic is healthcare, mm-hmm. which, you know, obviously I, I don't think they break down by industry, how many, what percentage is all in in cloud, but that number really uh, stood out to me. And then uh, what was kind of a validating number is the amount of companies or the percentage of companies that are all in in a single public cloud was single digit numbers. That was, that was, uh, I don't think it was surprising, but it's still a eye opening number. Right. So the, the first part you're calling out there is there are some companies that are just, they're just using cloud. <laughs> they don't have a, a private cloud as it were. And yeah, 24%, that does seem higher than I would expect. Do you think that's, mostly newer companies that didn't have a bunch of uh, legacy hardware or data centers that they were had to they kind of are now keeping and in, in, instead yeah you know as i think through some of the big financial services that are claiming to be all in and cloud which i don't doubt the claim uh, as much as i used to i actually used to doubt that claim quite a bit uh the fact that that they that a good portion of this is technology company heavy probably indicates that they are uh, uh, newer companies or companies offering SaaS services and SaaS services, unless you're uh, DHH uh, or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, what, what's the company? 37 Signal. Uh, yeah. Most SaaS comp- companies are 100% cloud. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Another thing that was interesting that you mentioned was that fact that there are a decent number of companies that they're multi-cloud. But when they're saying multi-cloud, what they really mean is they're using their on-premises cloud, private cloud, and one of the major public clouds, but only one of those major public clouds. Is that a trend you've actually seen talking to folks out in the industry doing that? We're still just doing one public cloud, but we're going to call ourselves multi-cloud. Yeah, so uh, I think as I talk to folks in the industry, the there's two motions that are typically happening when it comes to multi-cloud. IT may focus on a single cloud. I don't need to tell you two, you've done plenty of podcasts with folks talking about how hard it is to be multidisciplined in multiple clouds. It is a very difficult skill to maintain, but there's two motions that I'm finding, bringing customers to the multi-cloud reality. One, if you call SaaS multi-cloud, which I do, uh, you you have to deal with the reality that, you know, I'm using Salesforce or some major SaaS component that's a major part of my business, SAP in the cloud. Or the other aspect that a business unit or division has built a mission critical application and that mission critical application isn't on the default cloud and it's coming into IT to maintain. I see this kind of five to 10 year lifespan where the business maintains a homegrown cloud solution that's outside of IT and it gets to the point that they need proper IT controls and they throw it over the fence to IT. And that may not be on the default cloud. And then the second motion beyond SaaS and, you know, kind of this uh, business unit driven motion is M&A. 
when you acquire a company, it's, uh, you know, it's funny, we we're talking about the Flexera report, which acquired RightScale. Uh, you inherit the clouds of the uh, companies you acquire. And uh, I've, the, the more companies that I talk to that are heavy in MA, they, M&A, they do not bother anymore to try and convert uh, applications or SaaS offerings over to their preferred cloud offering. Okay. Okay. Now, an interesting uh, trend that was, or uh, an observation that was posited by the report is that potentially some companies are doing the consolidation from multiple public clouds down to a single public cloud uh, for cost savings reasons, um, both operational and just being able to use the costing tools out there to maybe get a better deal from your preferred cloud vendor of choice. Um, but I'm not sure if that if the data actually backed that up. What, did you did you get that sense at all from reading the report or just talking to folks? Yeah, I think that I, I also don't find that, you know, kind of a, a plausible scenario. You know, we we all have quite a bit of enterprise IT experience and especially companies at this size. The pain that it takes to replatform from one cloud to another cloud or from one data center to another data center or from one application stack to another application stack, most of the time, it's not worth the risk of the move to be able to say, I'm going to save, what, 10% on my cloud spend? I mean, that's it's, it's really disruptive to the business. And enterprise IT, especially at the scale of the companies that we're talking about, are typically risk averse uh, to consolidating. This isn't networking. I'm not moving from uh, MPLS, I mean, from frame relay to MPLS or MPLS to uh, SD-WAN. And I'm just trying to run my IP apps over this. This is, you know, we're talking about going from AWS Lambda to another serverless platform. This takes developers and resources that we just don't have. Right. Yeah. If they've built using those native primitives in one of the clouds and it's significantly different in the other cloud, like moving to Azure functions from AWS Lambda, that's not a that's not a pick it up and drop it in the other cloud. That's a rewrite of your application. You got to pull a lot more people in to do that. And it's, you know, and again, harking back to the right scale days is kind of what their business model was, was to abstract the underlying cloud. And uh, I think it's I'm, I'm confident in saying developers don't want that. They don't want unless, you know, you're giving me my AWS interface in Azure. They mm. don't want a third party type of interface, which, you know, is another stat that, you know, Pass is a really uh, uh, highlighted as a really popular option for how folks are consuming cloud uh, cloud in this report. Yeah, so an interesting trend that I want to note, um, and maybe to push back on that, developers don't want uh, a different interface to work with. Um, there is the rise of the backstage project that came originally, I think, through Spotify, and now is part of the CNCF, which is to build basically a developer portal from the platform team to give them that abstraction where it's just, hey, go to this portal to deploy your application and we'll handle the back end of it. But you need a really strong platform team to do that. 
Yeah, and I think we're not too far off in opinion. The ultimate platform, I'd argue the ultimate platform, and it's proved out by the market, is the AWS control plane. It is the ultimate platform because the platform engineers there have created something that developers really love. And great platform engineering, you guys have had it on this, this conversation on the podcast a lot. Great platform engineering is really hard. Uh, I mean, just I was talking to uh, Rob Hirschfield about this in the past. And I think you guys have had Rob Hirschfield on. Yeah. Uh, you know, just simply uh, if I want to make the uh, if I want to hide the process of what cloud a VM runs on. Just simply, you know, translating the VM ID, the machine ID from platform to platform is difficult. Not a VM on AWS is not equal to a VM on Azure, which is not uh, equal to a VM in VMware vSphere. And putting a platform in front of that is really tough. So when I say uh, platform uh, that developers don't want another platform, probably the more accurate thing to say is that they want a consistent experience. And it's very difficult to recreate that consistent experience outside of a single cloud provider. That does lead to another kind of trend that was in the report, which was about consistency of tooling across the clouds and how that's true of many different types of tooling. But the, I think the ones that they called out were security and governance being <laughs> two biggest, followed by, I think, cost. Uh, cost tracking was the third big one of we'd really like a tool that works across all of the clouds to do this kind of thing, um, which for governance makes perfect sense, right? And that's right. Let's think about like a practical problem. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things to pick on is security policy. You know, the security policy doesn't start with the firewall. It, you know, the, the, uh, Firewall is a means of implementing and auditing and and controlling or applying the security policy. But the security policy itself starts on the piece of paper. And that piece of paper might say that uh, application role does not have access to this type of data, of, of sensitive PII data. Now, the way we've implemented that policy in the past in traditional infrastructures that will take firewalls, will take access controls of databases and applications, combine that together to deploy a security policy. So let's take the simplest version of that, which is a Lambda, a Lambda process or a serverless process can or cannot have access to a database uh, to access the data in an Oracle database. Mm. Okay. How do I implement that across multiple clouds, hybrid clouds, or even in some cases, a single cloud? These constructs, we, we haven't thought of the, of the framework to even uh, create the controls yet. So the technology is lagging uh, woefully behind the single clouds, let alone multi-cloud. So the idea here is I have an idea, a policy that I want to create, but finding a tool that's actually capable of taking 
that policy as I've defined it in my mind or on paper, and then translating that to the multiple different clouds I'm using, that's a pretty big ask of any tool. Yeah, and so what triggers me is whenever a company, it's typically networking companies and security companies say, oh, we have a single uh, pane of glass or single approach to uh, managing, managing security across clouds. And what I'm finding that it is very limited in view that they either uh, saying that they can control a virtual firewall, physical firewall, and edge firewall with the same policy manager, but they're not saying that they will create your uh, access control list within AWS through the same tooling that you have to find multiple tools to do this in, which is why, which is what makes governance uh, really hard. Like, how do I control where and how data is copied across cloud? This this stuff is is tough to manage from a, a, a tool perspective. Right. We we had Joe Peterson on uh, pretty recently talking about all these different cloud security tools and acronyms that are out there that are trying to get their arms around this problem. But unsurprisingly, uh, when the report calls out the top challenges that organizations are facing when it comes to the cloud, uh, security is always in the top three. And usually it's number one. Uh, in this case, it actually wasn't. It was supplanted by cost optimization. What, is that, what does cost optimization mean to you, Keith? Yeah, so we've wrote an awful lot about this in the past few months, and we've created a lot of content around this. Uh, my newfound friend in the industry is David Lithium, Lithium who is the uh, chief cloud strategist over at Deloitte. And he has this saying that the primary responsibility of IT is to return value to the business. We can do that in a couple of different ways. We can expand our overall capabilities, which has been the mantra of cloud, or we can do it by addressing cost and uh, or limiting risk. There's ways in which we return value back to the business. So, you know, we get to this point where the cloud just becomes mature for us. We've We've expanded the capability of the business. The business is enjoying this capability, but I want to tie a second study into this report. IDC put out a survey and respondents, 63% of the respondents said that they spend more money on public cloud than they planned. We all have been in IT long enough to know that that's not sustainable. The you, we remember the days when everyone loved VMware because it reduced cost. Cost the number of servers that I had to buy was reduced, so the price that I paid for VMware vSphere software was a cost savings. Now the field posts have moved, and VMware vSphere is one of our biggest line items, and we're trying to figure out how to save money on that. It's no longer the cost savings and driver that is is today. Public cloud is no different. How do we, yes, it innovated. We were able to do some amazing things business-wise, where 63% of us are spending more money on it than, than what we planned. Which is interesting, the way that they phrase that particular line item. The way we're going to do cost savings, according to the report, is optimizing existing use of cloud. 
It's that echoing of the dialogue we've been having for two, three years now. Lift and shift was a bad idea. It's really a lot more expensive when you do it that way. And so I think optimizing existing use of cloud as the initiative means, okay, we picked it up and moved it there and that gained us some operational wins and maybe some other wins, but it's really expensive. So how do we make better use of this cloud that we're figuring out how to, how to use, honestly? You know, I, I had a conversation with a SaaS provider, a uh, backup storage provider, and it's not just those of us that lift and shift and in cloud. You know, these things have life cycles. If I built the application 10 years ago based on uh, the cloud 10 years ago, and I haven't refactored that application, it is insanely expensive today. So I uh, the backup provider said that they refactored their application and saved two thirds so optimization, the cloud is old enough that if you ha- that we now have legacy born in the cloud applications that mm-hmm. that can be optimized. Right. When you say that out loud, it sounds ridiculous. And then I'm like, wait, no, I started really using the cloud probably in 2014. And that's almost 10 years ago. So, yeah, we're talking a decade ago, people building app- their first gen cloud applications using the primitives that were available at the time. If you haven't gone back and taken a look at those applications, they're probably costing you a pretty significant amount. So I got to imagine that optimization really means let's go back and not only look at what's been lifted and shifted, but let's take a look at what we built in the cloud 10 years ago and what can we do to streamline that application. Not repatriate it, just streamline it. Yeah, Kelsey Hightower randomly this morning tweeted a link out to a Amazon Prime blog post in which they show going to a monolithic application stack for one of their core uh, capabilities saved a ton of money. This Mm. isn't, you know, this is the new world in which we have to constantly look at services. Just a simple thing, but all of us on the phone or on this call are uh, infrastructure people by nature. And there are use cases where 10 years ago, I would have built out a cluster of load load balancers. And today, Route 53 does the exact same thing that those load balancers would have done 10 years ago. And there's no need for that additional spin. So it is, you know, it's ever moving. But it is counterintuitive what you just said there. If it's monolithic applications are... Uh, a cheaper way to go because you would think, no, no, we broke it all up into microservices that we can scale them individually as we need. And what what could be more optimal than that? But what you're suggesting, Keith, is is in fact, you can't take that for granted. You can't. I mean, uh, if we think about the logical problem, and it's funny, us infrastructure people, uh, I think we naturally think this way. If you extend the firewall out to what we call the edge, you know, 10 years ago, which was the desktop, mm-hmm. now I got to manage 10,000 firewalls. <laughs> if I have to manage 10,000 firewalls, then there's all kinds of places where that can break. So we like to centralize control and we go back and forth to which is more valuable to have the granular control or centralized uh, uh efficiency. So Mm -hmm. the same thing happens with microservices. What happens when I can't figure out if a microservice has already been written for the thing that I want to consume? It it is uh, it is a 
interesting challenge that as you break things up into smaller things, you get more overhead. When you centralize them, you get less overhead, but you can it can be less efficient. So, you know, it's a it's an app by app. It's an app by app, use case by use case. And as the technology continues to mature, we have to constantly uh, there's no there's no easy button. Well, let me complicate it even further then, because uh, another logical thing I was thinking is, well, if we did lift and shift and we're doing a lot of IaaS, then if we're going to refactor and we're going to change how these applications are delivered, we're going to use more cloud native services. I'm going to use more PaaS. And, uh, and logically, then maybe that's the cheaper way to go. And you could generalize and think, hmm, IaaS expensive, maybe PaaS is cheaper. But uh, from what you're saying, that doesn't sound like a safe assumption to make either. It's not a safe assumption to make. And it's uh and you know, I'm I'm a fan of hybrid infrastructure. The I think people automatically assume that I'm also a fan of repatriation. I'm not a fan of repatriation, to be honest with you. The once you lose the skill, and you know, Ethan, you you're extremely familiar with the marketplace. Once I lose all of my network and storage en- engineers. Rebuilding that muscle is very hard. Mm. So I better figure out how to optimize those infrastructure like IS type workloads in place versus trying to go back to the data center. There's kind of no going back because spinning up that talent again is not easy, especially when I'm in an all cloud culture now. So it's it's uh, it's just not a simple problem. Cost optimization. Not easy uh, to to bring that talent back in house if that talent even exists anymore because that's you know yet another thing the event that we were at this week Keith that came up several times where uh, companies are struggling to find infrastructure professionals with the skill levels deep enough to support on premises computing and we knew this problem was coming uh, as the cloud abstracted the low level bits a bunch of us were asking the question, well, what happens when you need to troubleshoot at the lower levels and you need those resources and we're no longer training people because the value has moved higher up the stack, which it should be. But I I think the problem that's unique to this part of our history in IT services is that the old stuff isn't going away. Mm-hmm. The the old stuff doesn't seem like it's going to go away. So we're going to leave and live. I'm resurrect the term from uh, Gartner from years ago. We're going to live in this bimodal IT world mm-hmm. for a long time where we have a strong need for the data center skill set alongside a growing need for the cloud native skill set. It's hard to attract talent to the data center side of things because cloud seems to be what's exciting, right? That's that's where the action is, or at least perceived action is. So you got to find a way to make like bare metal sexy again. And I don't think we can just like rent out Justin Timberlake to do it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a uh, it's it is a tough problem. You know, it's it's not in not it's not unlike you know the problem of finding a COBOL programmer, maybe. You know, the, the solution to finding COBOL pro, uh, programmers or is chat GTP four or five or six. I, I don't know. I know AI isn't the prop solve, uh, solution to this problem. Uh, the the problems are just too complex for where AI is at today. We'll spend you'll spend more time prompting 
for the solution than actually solving for, for the problem. And you still need to inherently know the low level bits as it pertains to your business. Uh, Ethan, we were talking to the Art of Networking folks at the event earlier this week, and they were talking about time. What was it? Time since there were time lapse Ethernet or something to that effect. And I'm like, I've never heard of that. And there's so <laughs> many I've never heard of that technologies in the enterprise to say that we can AI our way out of this. Yeah, I think it was time triggered Ethernet, and it, and it is an oddball one, even for people who are deep in the we, the weeds of networking. That was a weird one, but but yeah, it, your point stands, Keith. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I definitely have not heard of that before either. Um, it, you mentioned, you know, lack of pe- people who know the technologies. The number three challenge, I think, on the list was lack of resources, and that seems counterintuitive or just doesn't seem right because you've got these company tech companies laying off people. So you think there'd be a glut of resources that are available. So does that mean that we just haven't bothered to train people properly? We're not willing to take junior level people and give the, provide them with the necessary mentorship and training to become effective cloud practitioners or data center practitioners. Do you think that's like the main problem or is it, you just people are looking for the magical unicorn that can do everything and do it for fifty percent cheaper than they than uh, than they want to pay. Well, I think a lot of those components are uh, contributors to the challenge. IT resources on the higher end have always been a challenge. I don't care what discipline you worked in, whether it's storage, compute, network, security, finding someone at that. CCNP, AWS, uh, uh, professional level have has always been traditionally a challenge. When you get to the core of it, to be really good at this stuff, you almost have to love it. Like you need to be someone who's listening to this podcast to you know you you if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably listening to it on your way into work or your run some time in your spare moments. And those resources have always been scarce Mm -hmm. compared to the larger uh, uh, market. The other challenge is the entry point for cloud expertise, like the best cloud engineers over the past five or six years have been like seasoned storage network I mean, seasoned storage engineers, seasoned network engineers, they have the depth of understanding to know how distributed systems work. And that distributed systems knowledge is kind of bare, bare minimum entry to be a proper cloud architect. So what we're seeing is a, a, a cannibalization of the data center engineer mm. uh, into cloud uh, architects. And not enough or not a path for entry level up to cloud architect. I can tell you that the professional services divisions of these uh, public cloud providers have a six month pipeline of work. They don't have enough. They cannot hire enough hands on keyboard folks. So as you look at who's being laid off, it is the people It's not the people needed to do 
the conversion from Lyft and Shift to cloud native. It is people who uh, who just are in a, the ancillary skill sets around uh, enterprise IT technologies. Yeah, but Keith, there's another uh, issue we could raise, which is it's not just the top end is being you know, cannibalized, as you put it, and being taken over to becoming cloud architects. It's also that I think there's a there's a there's no clear path to get from that junior level where you're early in your career to that senior level anymore, because there's so much to know in the middle that you're supposed to pick up on the skill sets that you have to have to become effective as a cloud engineer or architect are just, it feels like it's so much more than say 20 years ago when, uh, when we were doing certifications, let's say, and getting into our fields and, and developing our specialties. Um, there was a lot to know then. Okay, 20 years later, you still have to know all that stuff to speak to the point you made earlier. The old stuff's not going away, but now you have to have all these additional skills on top of it. And and what we used to have uh, taken as, I'm an expert now because I know all these things and I passed these exam certifications and, you know, and so on, is becoming more or less table stakes and everything you need to know now is built on top of that. So how do you as a junior engineer come into the world of cloud, have an expectation of knowing all these things about on-premises infrastructure and have all these all this background knowledge and and so on, and then add to that automation tooling, and then add to that distributed systems, and you know, and on and on. There's a lot of computer science theory that functionally you just it would be good to know, and you just end up not knowing it because you end up becoming someone who can uh, click the right things in the UI and make the things happen, whether or not you know how it works or not. It's almost like the skills that is is shifting where the things that you used to take for granted that you knew as someone who was an infrastructure practitioner are, are sliding away. And so how do you find as a company, as an organization, the resources and the talents you need? The path ahead is it's hard for someone to pick up all of these skills and become proficient at them. So you can walk into a shop and say, yeah, I'm good at all this stuff. I got 20 years of experience, but you only graduated from college five years ago. I know it's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. I, this is a problem that I've given quite a bit of thought to. And there's two levels of problems. One, as uh, leaders, CTOs, VPs of IT infrastructure, cloud platform engineering, we need to redesign our organizations. So it starts there. We need to change uh, uh, our expectations of there being a jack of all trades. You know, when we started our career, if you knew network, if you knew Novell uh, networking, then it, there's a chance you knew the fundamentals of networking, et cetera, because I was part of the path of learning how to uh, install a network server. That has all changed. This stuff is too big to have one person with that much domain knowledge. So, you know, you, it's kind of a microservices approach to managing the governance around your platform team. <laughs> You need an expert in functions. You need an expert in cloud networking. I, I need to listen to your, uh, the as we're recording today, you have a, should you become certified in cloud networking? Whatever that means, that, that really sparked my curiosity. I'm like, what does it mean to be certified in cloud networking? There's so yeah. much. Yeah. Uh, so you have to, one, redesign. You need to know what you're, you need to know what you're building and how to design uh, a team around that. And from the junior engineer, you actually have something that we didn't 
have when we started our career in the 90s. And that is a vibrant open source community. Uh, the number of people that I'm finding uh, who are finding careers and jobs and kind of their niche through open source has been amazing. One, the community uh, is starving for help. So they're more than happy to put a junior in engineer on probably, you know, what's probably considered a senior level problem. And you're coming up with, you know, this all this on the job training and you find your niche. Is that going to be enough? I don't think so. I think uh, we're beyond the time that we need more formalized training and apprenticeship programs, kind of the ideas we kicked around in the early 2000s. Uh, we just need a better machinery for churning out people who are good at IT. Mm hmm. Yeah, good at IT. It's funny you put it that way because most of the training comes from whom? The vendors. You know, it's vendor right. specific. It's training on tools. And yeah, you get a lot of theory along the way and you're going to pick up some computer science depending on the orientation of the training program. But at the end of the day, it's pro very probably a vendor specific certification. There's some notable exceptions, of course, but that is the thrust of it. And a lot of people that are listening to the show are gonna be very keen on Azure and AWS certifications. And you're gonna learn cloud from those points of view, uh, as opposed to you know a lot of the theory. And I don't even know what you get in, if we to step away from vendor certs and talk about what colleges and universities are teaching. What do you get in a computer science uh, program these days? What do you get in an IT infrastructure program from those schools these days? Is it general enough? A lot of times it's augmented with something specific like Cisco with their Cisco Networking Academy that they uh, put in at different colleges and trade schools and such. So it's uh, the education is uh, makes it tough, I think, for where we're at now in this I was going to say transition, but it isn't transition. It's 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 this hybrid world or bimodal. You brought you broke out with bimodal, Keith. Yeah, bimodal. Yeah, but my son uh, graduated from uh, my alma mater, DePaul, with a CS degree just three four years ago. And I was talking to, and I've talked to quite a few people in this age range, this now in the in the workforce, and they feel completely ear prepared. Like like this cloud stuff is, believe it or not people graduating from college this year, cloud stuff is new to them. They're not being taught to develop in the public cloud. They're, uh, you know, they're the, I was excited because my son brought home a Raspberry Pi and he was going to, you know, do some automation on a, a Raspberry Pi, but they are teaching the fundamentals of computer science, which is a great fundamental. So if you're a career professional, and you're thinking, oh, how do I switch over and become, you know, a senior engineer or whatever? And and uh, a CS degree, if you're not, if you're pre, you know, the master's or graduate level and you're thinking a uh, a bachelor's degree is going to help. Uh, I'd be hard pressed to find programs that's really adding to your skill. It's kind of at the minimum that master's level that's giving you any kind of real world uh experience and that's still just all theory you know ethan you made mention uh of the idea of apprenticeships or maybe that was you keith <laughs> I, don't was keith, um, I think he said to talk about the journeyman kind of idea yeah, yeah. apprenticeship idea and to treat it and infrastructure and engineering as more of a trade 
as opposed to the way that you would do it with a traditional four-year college degree. And I think to a certain degree, that actually makes a lot more sense. If I think about my own personal journey in terms of learning about IT, I did eventually get my bachelor's in computer science. But the majority of what I use on a day-to-day basis from technology came from working with more senior people and them taking the time to show me things about technology, to teach me about concepts and ideas that just didn't come up in the classroom. And it sounds like that, that piece of things is still a little bit broken. That those, those skills and those ideas are not making their way down to the classroom. And now we have really disruptive technologies making it even worse. Uh, Keith, you mentioned chat GPT being a thing. And yeah, that's not going to fix all of our resourcing issues. But are students in college going to be taught about how to potentially use AI to improve their programming? <laughs> they probably yeah again to uh invoke kelsey hightower's name again uh he had a really great post about uh career professionals on how do you use uh chat gtp type language uh models are you using it to ask how to do code or are you using it to ask how to do frameworks so and how to automate it so that you're saying you're not going in and saying, hey, create a network config for a VPN from site to site, but you're creating a thing that says create the automation so that someone can put in the inputs for to, to, to streamline the process. So are you asking it for process? And this is something that's not easy to think about. You need kind of an architect's mind to approach that. And who's training you to have a architect's mind. It wasn't, and I I shared this with Ethan earlier this week, it wasn't until I was like 10 or 12 years into my career that I learned to be a proper engineer. Mm -hmm. So it took me 10 to 12 years to find an organization, a company that was willing to teach me how to be a proper engineer. That is still very much needed. Hmm. I think yeah, I mean, universities and colleges obviously bear some portion of the responsibility. But then I think the companies that are looking for these magical resources that they can't seem to find need to look inward and go, well, why don't, are, are we developing our people internally to meet these roles as well? Or are we just hoping that the right person is going to happen along that has all these skills already for us? They, they've got to because the technology is moving too quickly. There are going to be new announcements at AWS reInvent this year. I don't know what they are. There's going to be a bunch of them, though. And at least one of them you might be interested in. It might be a thing that you need. How do you think people are going to learn that? At some point as an organization, as a business organization, you need to commit to training your team to keep up with the technologies that you can find business value in. And if you don't, you just expect people to watch a couple of YouTube videos and kind of wing it and they're smart, they'll figure it out. It's gotten too complicated. It really and truly has. It's not as simple as that if it ever was. It certainly isn't today. So a commitment on the part of uh, IT team leads to communicate to the business, I have got to have a training budget for my people, or we're going to be paying for it as a business over time. It's not going to be super obvious in the first year, but as year two and year three rolls on and year four, and we start falling further behind and our architectures become antiquated, it's going to hurt more and more and more. And then you've got all these years, this technical education debt that you've built up by not training your people. 
and uh, and it, it's going to hurt. There is a business cost to it. Yeah, we can point to the sports leagues. You can't always go out and just buy talent. You have to at some point nurture it inside. I used to laugh whenever when I was a management consultant. I'd go in and talk to leaders about this problem. And they say, oh, we only hire the best. You know what? I've I've. I've talked to enough companies to know that not every company can hire the best. There's only a finite <laughs> the best. I don't know how you define we only hire the best, but not everybody is getting the best. No, the uh, who who who's getting the best is Google, uh, Apple, the fame Meta, companies yeah. are getting the best. If you're a no no slant to Cincinnati. But if you're an insurance company in Cincinnati and you require people to work from the office, you're quite frankly, aren't reaching the best. Right. Right. And one thing that I've noticed, because I did my stint in consulting as well and going around to different companies, oftentimes you would find really, really good engineers that had been developed in-house at, at the company and even though they could probably go get another job somewhere else that paid more, they felt a debt of gratitude or loyalty to the company that had taken the time to help grow them as an engineer. So not only do you get the benefits of training that person and making them better at their job, you also increase the likelihood that they're going to stay at that job and keep doing good things and maybe train the next generation. So... I think that I don't know how we got so deeply on this topic, but I'm loving it because I think it's it's something that companies forget, especially in economic dark times where it's all about the bottom line. You need to look a little further ahead and go, if we don't invest in our people now, when things start to turn around, we're going to have no one to help us with it. Well, I'll bring it back to the report. The <laughs> point is the top challenges, security, resources, cost optimization. These are people process technology challenges. Mm -hmm. you, you can't say that once I, I get to the pain, feeling the pain of not being optimized for cost in the cloud, that now is the time to solve the problem. The time to solve the problem was when I had the opportunity to uh, hire the low-skilled worker and change them to uh, a data scientist. I have legit examples of talking to customers in which they've done this. Uh, Nature Farms, which is out in Canada, a, a, uh, 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 a greenhouse farming company that uses uh, OT devices on every tomato plant. Every tomato plant in a 200 square, 200 acre farm to optimize for cost, converted their growers into data scientists. Now you have people who were uh, lower skilled workers who are growing crops now using their skill set to apply it to data science to improve the yield. It's that type of mindset, this growth mindset, to borrow the pun. Uh, that needs to be applied so that you're getting ahead of the problem. When they're calling me in for co cost optimization because they need to cut their budget this year, it's too late. 
I'm happy to take the money and I'm happy to help. But the culture that's needed is the culture that uh, allows for this pipeline of talent and continual change and reevaluation of of talent uh, governance and approach that's needed. That's that's a great summary. I don't think I have anything to add to that. So maybe that's a good place to close out today's episode. Keith, if folks want to find more of your ideas and pontifications on the internet, what's some good places to find you? The easiest place is thectoadvisor.com. We try to put everything there. The only thing that doesn't go there is my random musings, which is all over the place. And uh, unfortunately, the best place to find those random musings is still Twitter at CTO Advisor. Okay, great. We'll include those links in the show notes. Keith Townsend, thank you so much for appearing today on Day 2 Cloud. And hey, listeners, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would really like to hear about them. You can hit either of us up on Twitter at Day2Cloud Show. We both monitor that account. Or you can fill out the request form at Day2Cloud.io. Did you find this conversation interesting? Would you like to continue it with other like-minded people? Well, guess what? The Pack of Pushers Podcast Network has a free Slack group open to everyone, including vendors, though no vendor talk. Uh, you can visit packetpushers.net slash Slack and join. It's a marketing-free zone for engineers to chat, compare notes, tell war stories, solve problems together, all those good things. Again, that's packetpushers.net slash Slack. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. 